Well, good morning. You guys ready for the snow? I'll believe it when I see it, but I am hopeful. I am hopeful. So um, it is good, though, that uh, obviously whatever weather is coming in is uh, held off so that we could be here, have a full house this morning. Uh, clearly, you can see why we're looking to go to two services. And so that's a good problem to have. And uh, we're glad that you're here today, too, as we begin a new sermon series in the book of John. And uh, as we think about going to two services and starting a new series, this would be a great time to get plugged into a life group if you're not already uh, in one. And so if you have, have an interest or would like to know more about life groups, when they meet, what they're about, and all of that, please see me after the service. I'd love to talk with you, help you get connected uh, so that you don't miss out on all the fun. Uh, one of the things... Uh, the biggest difference between uh, what happens here on Sunday mornings and, and with a life group is this, this is one-way communication. But in a life group, you get to process truth together. You get to explore God's Word, um, learn from each other, and find ways to apply the Scripture uh, to your life. So we hope that you'll consider uh, doing that. So uh, as we do with every new uh, book study that we do, the, the first week always has an introduction, always has uh, some information that may appear to be boring on the front end, but is absolutely essential to our understanding of the book as we go through. So I'm going to share with you on the front end just some introductory material uh, before we jump into our study of the book of John. And probably the first thing you're going to notice by the title, the book of John or the gospel of John, is that the author is John. Uh, and you may be wondering, well, what John? Aren't there a lot of Johns in the Bible? And the truth is that there are a lot of Johns in the Bible. Um, the Apostle John is the one who wrote this particular book, and he was one of Jesus's uh, 12 disciples. And for some reason, the clicker's not working right now, so you guys will need to be on that. But uh, John was one of the 12 disciples. He was a son of Zebedee, and the other son was James. Remember, James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. And throughout the book, the author refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple in whom Jesus loved. So when you see that, you know that the author is talking about himself. And the date and the place of writing uh, was around 85 AD, sometime in the late part of the first century. And it was written from Ephesus which was a very important urban center within the Roman Empire. And uh, it, it, it is located in what would be modern-day Turkey, but then known as Asia Minor. John's audience consisted both of Jews and Gentiles. And it's very interesting, as you read through the book of John, you see both audiences in his mind as he writes uh, for one of the things uh, in, in addressing a Gentile audience, he translates the Aramaic language into Greek, which was the language of the people of, of his day. He explains Jewish customs and geography so that non-Jewish readers would have a better understanding of what he's talking about. And he introduces Jesus in a unique way against the backdrop of Greek philosophies like Stoicism and Gnosticism. 
And of course, he also is aware of his Jewish audience. And so he goes on to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we come to the purpose for his book. And he tells us what that purpose is. And we're going to read it in a little bit later. But the purpose for writing his gospel was to help people believe in Jesus. That was his purpose. But by belief, he means so much more than intellectual assent. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the message. He wants his readers not only to know who Jesus is, but he wants them um, to possess a rich and well-informed faith. The theme of his book is the promised Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we can have life in his name. Now, a lot of times when you're reading the Bible, you probably don't think about what type of literature it is that you're reading, but the genre of literature is gospel narrative, and it's filled with stories, and it's different than the epistles that we read, which are didactic, they're, they're teaching, precept upon precept. Here, there are stories, there are proverbs, post-resurrection appearances, and the book focuses on seven of Jesus's miracles, as well as the seven great I am statements that we'll also look at as we go through the book. John gives us the story of Nicodemus very early on, and perhaps the greatest gospel summary in the entire Bible. And you see it every Sunday if you're watching a football game in an end zone, right? John 3.16. John records for us the encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well, the washing of the disciples' feet, and his high priestly prayer, among other things. So before we go any further with that introduction being laid out, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity that we have to gather, to worship you, to learn of you. Lord, we pray this morning that even though this may be a familiar passage to many of us, Lord, I pray that you would just penetrate our hearts with the truth that is contained therein. Lord, that we would see you as perhaps we've never seen you before. And that we would wrestle with the implications of your word for our lives. And I pray that we would respond accordingly. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been mistaken for someone else? No? I don't think I've ever been mistaken for someone else. I've had people say, I look like someone else. Have you ever had anybody say, you look like somebody else? A, f a few hands, okay. Yeah, um, you know, although I, I must admit, I've, I've never had someone um, say to me, hey, aren't you Tom Selleck? Why are you laughing? Or, or aren't you, hey, aren't you Tom Cruise? Come on, you're laughing at me. At least no one's ever said, hey, aren't you Danny DeVito? Okay. Um, 
Those of you who know who he is, you know why that's good news. So, uh, but, but I have had people say at times, I look like certain people. Now, I don't mind being told that I look like somebody else, but I don't want other people to think that I'm somebody that I'm not. And the reason for that is, is that you can't have a meaningful relationship with someone who doesn't know who you really are. Now, we probably, we've probably never really spent much time thinking about that because that doesn't really happen, but, but you want people to know who you really are. It's a, it's a dreaded curse to, to live a duplicitous life, to, to put on airs, to try to be somebody that you're not because you know deep down nobody really knows you. And if they don't know you, they can't love you. And that's exactly why John wrote this book. John wrote this book so that we would know who Jesus truly is and that we might love him. In John chapter 20, you have to get to the end of the book to actually read it, but John actually tells us why he wrote. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John writes this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If we are to have life in his name, we need to know who Jesus truly is. We must believe rightly about him. And that's the whole reason why John wrote his gospel. Now, if you keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the gospel of John, and you use it almost as a filter or a grid, everything will just kind of jump off the page at you. Perhaps like you've never seen before. Oh, this is why John's telling us this. This is why he's going to such great lengths to cause us to see this. It's because he wants us to know who Jesus is so that we can have a relationship with him, that we might have life. Now, having said all of that, I want you to forget it all. I want you to forget that you've ever heard of the name of Jesus. Now, I know you really can't do that. But I want you to imagine you're a first century Jew. And you've never heard of the Jesus of whom John is writing. Now, you believe that God will one day send a Messiah to rescue you, to save you from oppression, to save you from yourself, to give you a new heart, to give you new life, but you have no idea when that's going to happen. Centuries have gone by, and he hasn't come, and you don't know when he's going to come, and you don't know who he is. That's all you believe. You know nothing about this person that John writes. This morning, as John unravels the mystery of the word, I want to introduce you to Jesus the way John introduced him to his readers. And I want us to grasp the weightiness and the implications of John's words for our lives and then to respond 
accordingly. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 1. If not, it will be up on screen. And uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 to start as we unravel the mystery of God's Word. The mystery of the Word. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, could there be a more profound beginning to any book <laughs> ever? I think not. Nothing so great, so majestic, so marvelous has ever been crammed into so few words. Yeah, I mean, you could spend your life just pondering these three verses and the verses that follow. John begins his gospel with a very concise and powerful prelude that points the reader back to creation and back to the very first words of the very first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And he says here, in the beginning was the Word. And one of the first things that, that we learn about this Word, whatever it is, is that it is eternal. It existed in the beginning, before the world ever was. You see, it's important to understand the Word did not come into existence 2,000 years ago. The word pre-existed, John. It existed in the beginning with God. But we also learn in verse 1 something else that is quite amazing. is that the word was with God and was God. It, it tells us several things. It tells us, one, that the word coexisted with God. So there was God and the Word, and they coexisted together in the beginning, which is not too hard to comprehend. It's the second part that we have the problem with. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that'll make your head spin. How can that how, how can the Word be with God and at the same time be God? Well, hang with me. He tells us something else in verse 2 that he hasn't told us to this point. Up to this point, in one, one verse, we know an awful lot about the Word, but we don't know everything. And there's one thing that stands out in verse 2. Now, verse 2 looks a little redundant, right? Because it says he was in the beginning with God. Well, verse 1 says, 
that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so in the middle there it says, and the Word was with God. He's saying the same thing. He was in the beginning with God. So what's different? What new piece of information do you have in verse 2 that you didn't have in verse 1? It's a little pronoun. He. He was in the beginning with God. So now we know something a little bit more about the word, that the word is not a force, it's not a power, it's not something that emanates from God. It is a person. The word is a person. The eternal word is a person. He, he was with God and he is God. Now verse Three confirms this and, and even more because in verse 3 we read that all things were made through him. Okay? And without him there was not anything made that was made. So the word, this eternal word, this person made the world, created the world. This personal being this preexistent eternal word who was with God and is God is the one who created the world and all things in it. Nothing came into existence apart from him. So that means that he is separate and distinct from his creation. He's not part of the creation. He's the one that created everything. All that is owns its existence to him. And it is so fitting that John refers to him as the word. Now, I could spend a lot of time here talking about the word, the logos, and everything. I would just challenge you, do some study on your own. Because remember, John is writing to a Greek and Jewish audience. And so he uses his words very carefully. He uses symbolism and imagery to get his point across. But I think... The main reason he uses Jesus and describes him as the word here and links the beginning of his gospel to that of the beginning of Genesis is very quite simple and almost self-explanatory. The word. Let me see if you can pick it out. Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and God said let 
us make man in our image. And God said all this, and it was so. God spoke the world into existence. And John is telling us that it was through the word that the world came to being. It's no wonder. He's talking about the creator God of the universe. And he says, in the beginning was the word. In verse 4, we read, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John uses a couple of creation motifs here, and the first is that of life. And here we learn that the Word not only created all life, but the Word sustains all life. He is the source of all life, both physical and spiritual Our life is derived from our connection with the Word, with God. Light is another motif John uses here. And just as the physical world is dependent on light, our spiritual life is dependent upon light. This speaks to the illumination of our hearts and minds. It is that we've been given God-given reason. We have the light of conscience. We have the ability to see and understand the things that God reveals to us as he illumines our hearts and our minds. And, And many of these truths come to us what is known as general revelation. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 1, that all you have to do is just lift your eyes to the heavens or look to the mountains or to the oceans, and you can clearly see that God exists by what has been made so that we are without excuse. That's general or natural revelation. But then there's also special revelation. Things that we would know about God that we can only know if God reveals them to us in a special way. And he does this primarily through his word. In the Old Testament, he sent the prophets. He did miracles and things. And Hebrews tells us in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And thus we have special Revelation, And I think this is the main point that John is actually getting to here is because light is closely associated with the word. And therefore, I think he most likely means that we have received spiritual enlightenment through the word. The statement, the darkness has not overcome it, could also be translated, uh, the, the darkness has not comprehended it, or the darkness or has not understood it. And I think both would be correct. Because light dispels darkness. But scripture tells us that people love the darkness and refuse to come to the light, lest their evil deeds be exposed. 
Now in verses 6 through 9, John reveals that the light was now coming into the world in a new and unexpected way. Let's look at those verses. There was a man sent from John, whose name, excuse me, from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, you have to remember, John is writing this roughly 50 years after Jesus ascended to the Father. So in some ways, he's, he's, he's saying things almost in retrospect, almost as a reflection of what he has experienced. The true light was coming into the world. And it's interesting to note, too, that everywhere we see the name John in the book of John, it's not referring to the Apostle John. Because the Apostle John doesn't refer to himself as John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. Whenever you see the word John, he is referring really to John the Baptist. John was not the light. Rather, he came to bear witness to the light. So who is he? See, remember earlier I asked you, try to forget you know anything about Jesus. If you just took what John has been telling you, by this time, if you were a Jew, you'd be on the edge of your seat. Come on, John. Tell us. Who is he? Who is this eternal word who is, was with God and was God and who created all things and who, in whom is life and, and light? John, tell us who is the word. And finally, after 13 verses, in verse 14, John tells us who the word is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, this is an amazing portion of Scripture here in the first chapter of John. But the first thing that we can say is that whatever the word was, and we know that it was God, became flesh, became human. And now we begin to understand who, Jesus, who, who John is referring to here. 
Jesus is the eternal word made flesh for us. He is God the Son, and he was with the Father. See, we, we also now know who God was, that the word was with, who was the Father. And we now know that the word is the Son, the Son of God. The whole, this, 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 you know, John in verse 15, again, speaks to Jesus's eternality when he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Remember John 1, he was in the beginning with God. Before John the Baptist was ever conceived, Jesus was. For he is the eternal word. And this whole chapter reveals this truth about Jesus. But I'm not sure that I've ever really noticed verse 18 as clearly as I have during my study of this chapter for this series. Um, and, and just if, to look at it again, if you would there, um, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. And there's a semicolon there. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This, pay attention to the grammar here. No one has ever seen God, the only God. It's not talking about no one has ever seen God, the only God, the only God being God. Rather, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Other translations, no matter what you, you, you say the same thing, I think the CSV gives it um, clarity here. So if we look at John 1, 18 in the CSV, it, he writes, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Wow. Now, you ought to make note of all the verses in Scripture that point to the deity of Jesus. You, you, you really do, because there's a lot of people in the world, they, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe he's a good moral teacher, maybe a prophet of God. Some people believe he's an angel. Um, that's not what Scripture teaches. We need to be crystal clear on who Jesus is, because you can't have a relationship with someone you don't know. Now, we could see this truth in shadow form in the Old Testament, but now it has been revealed to us in the flesh. Jesus was and is and will always be God, the second person of the Trinity. There it goes. I opened up a can of worms. The Trinity. Talk about the Trinity for a minute. It's a very important doctrine in the church. So before I explain what the church has always believed about the Trinity, let me share with you some erroneous views of the Trinity. Um, first of all, Christians, despite what people may say, we do not believe in three gods. Okay? Because the logic goes, well, you believe the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And, you know, when I took math, one plus one plus one equals three. And some people will make some strong arguments to say that you really believe in three gods. <clears throat> we don't. We believe in one God, but I'll get there. 
Not only do we not believe in three gods, Christians do not believe in a three-headed god like Gahedra. Anybody know who Gahedra is? Somebody? You don't remember those old Japanese monster movies, Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, Gahedra? Yeah, Gahedra was the three-headed monster, or I think he was also known as Monster Zero. I, mean, I could be wrong there, but anyway, no, we don't serve a three-headed god either. Christians do not believe that Jesus is a created lesser God like the Jehovah Witnesses do in some ways. In, in fact, they, you see, a lot of times when people don't understand Scripture, when it makes their head spins, you know, they, they just walk away. Or they come up with some crazy notion of how to dispel this to help it make sense. Well, in the, the New World Translation, the Jehovah Witnesses actually insert um, the indefinite article A. One little letter changes the whole meaning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. See, we don't believe that. That's not what Scripture teaches. Neither do Christians believe that there is one God who manifests himself as three different persons. So there's really only one God, but sometimes he shows up as the Father, sometimes he shows up as the Son, and sometimes he shows up as the Holy Spirit. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is the belief that there is one God who exists as three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying this is that God is one in essence and three in person. Now, there's a graphical representation I'd like to show you here um, that might be helpful to you. See if my little clicker works here. So you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what this is trying to show you here is, is that the Holy Spirit, for instance, is God. The Son is God. The Father is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father and so forth and so on. It's maintaining the distinct personhood of each, but yet trying to illustrate that there is only one God. Now, the reality is, is um, a lot of people have tried to explain the Trinity. Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, there are some really cool illustrations and analogies, but they all fall short. Why? Because it's a mystery. We don't and cannot comprehend it. And we're trying our best to understand what Scripture teaches. And the, and the word Trinity, as you will undoubtedly be told, does not appear in the Bible. You're right, it doesn't. It was created to describe what Scripture teaches. And the more you look at Scripture, you will find evidence that clearly tells us the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, we may not be able to wrap our minds around that, but if that's what Scripture teaches, we have to conclude that that is the truth. It's not so much different than what scientists have done in, with the study of light. Light has perplexed scientists for many, many years. Finally, they just threw their hands up and gave it a name called, called it a photon. 
Because when they looked at light from various angles, they saw that it had properties of both uh, uh, waves, that light existed in waves, but also existed in particles. The problem is, is that the two were kind of contrary to one another because particles have mass, therefore weight, whereas waves don't have mass, therefore don't, don't have weight. So how do you reconcile this? We see both elements here, and they devised the term, they coined the term photon to describe that. Now, I'm not a scientist. There's probably a lot more to that, but that's my understanding. And that's all we've done with the word Trinity, is that this is our best understanding of what Scripture teaches, that there is one God and three distinct persons. It's a mystery. I love what A.W. Tozer said about uh, the Trinity here. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity, as I have said before, is truth for the heart. The fact that it cannot be satisfactorily explained, instead of being against it, is in its favor. Such a truth had to be revealed, for no one could have imagined it. It's so far out there, Nobody in the right mind would have thought of it. And so, it's truth for the heart. So, this leads me to ask the question, why is it so important? Why is it so important that we believe that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word made flesh? Well, I've already shared it with you in John chapter 20 so that we might have life in his name. We need to know who Jesus really is if we are to have a meaningful and saving relationship with him. John wants us to know and believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and we must believe rightly about Jesus or we do not believe in him at all. We don't believe in him at all if we don't believe rightly about him. And if we do not believe rightly, Scripture says, we will perish. So how do we respond to the mystery of the word? John has unraveled the mystery of the word to us, but now we want to look briefly at responding to the mystery of the word. And here's the good news. This point is shorter than the first point. Uh, and, and, and just in case any of you were wondering, you know, say, wow, man, just, this is really good, but, but 18 verses, are we going to get through all of this? Well, last week, the Elder Forum went an hour, so I figured I got at least that long. So, um, so responding to the mystery word, let's take a look at verse 10 through 13, because this really answers the question, what, 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 what will you do with Jesus? At the end of the day, what will you do? So John chapter 1, verse 10 through 13. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of of God. Jesus came to his own people. He came to the people that he created for himself, the Jews, and they rejected him. 
Now hear me. In coming to earth, Jesus confronts us all. He confronts us all and he gives us a choice. We have to make a decision. Will we receive him or will we reject him? Those are the only two options. There is no middle ground. There is no room for gray. There is no in-between. He is either your savior, God, and king, or he's not. You either love him or you don't. You cannot be neutral towards Jesus. Now, some of you here this morning and maybe some of you watching online, you've been faking it. You've been playing the part, playing the role, faithful church attender, maybe even serving, giving. But you've treated Jesus like an add-on to your life. Listen to me. Jesus will not be an accessory to your life or to mine. He is our life. We either have him or we don't. You are spiritually dead, walking in darkness until you receive him as your God and Savior. It all comes down to who's on the throne of your life. Are you living for yourself and for your own pleasures or are you living to fulfill the will of God? Are you living in such a way that you are showing and demonstrating your love for God through your obedience to his commands? Have you surrendered your life to him? Now the good news is, is that he promises eternal life to all who will receive him. To all who believe in his name. And, and I feel like at this point it's important to maybe digress just a little bit and, 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 and talk about what does it mean to believe? Because I think when we hear the word believe, we, we simply think we acknowledge some truth. Some, it's an intellectual assent of sorts uh, that we believe something to be true. But that's not biblical belief. The word that's translated believe here is the Greek word pistuo. It means to have faith in, to trust in, to rely on. It means to have confidence in or to be firmly persuaded of something, that something is true. It's a conviction that something is true. And here's probably the greatest understanding of belief. Biblical belief is trust in action. It's not just some intellectual understanding or assent to a certain set of facts. It's personally putting your faith and trust and confidence in something. I'll give you an illustration. Let's say you're taking a a hike in the mountains. My wife and I love to go hiking in the mountains. And uh, we've been to the Rockies, the Appalachians. I've uh, been to the Alps. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. But let's say you're hiking in the Alps and you come to an edge of a cliff and you want to get to the other side. The only problem is there's a, maybe a 1,000, 2,000 foot gorge there. And you can't get across. There's no way you can climb down, get across. But you happen to notice an old 
wooden swinging bridge. And you see the bridge, and the bridge spans the, 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 the gap between the two ridges. Now, you, in one sense, people, when they talk about belief, it's like this. They see it, and they go, yeah, that looks pretty sturdy. I, I think that could hold my weight. I think that would support me. Okay? That's not biblical belief. Okay? You don't really believe that that bridge can support your weight until you start walking across it. That's biblical belief. It's literally putting your faith in and tr you're trusting your life, in this case, to Jesus and in Jesus. Is that the kind of faith that you have? John did not write his gospel so that we could draw hypothetical conclusions about Jesus and play Christian. He wrote it so that we would know who he is and what he has done for us. He wrote it so that we would believe in him and entrust our lives to him. This is what it means to receive him. You see, you don't become a child of God by being born into a Christian family. You don't become a child of God by being raised in the church. You don't become a child of God even by deciding to be a Christian. That may come as an affront to some of you. You become a child of God when God, in his will and by his grace, causes you to be born again. That's when you become a child of God. How do you know if you're a child of God? Well, there's a lot, of, a lot of tests we can take. But I suppose we would start with, have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone to save you from your sins? Has your life been changed? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Jesus put it this way. He says, you will know them by their fruits. It's not that difficult to tell if a person truly loves the Lord or not. But we've become really, really good at covering it up, of faking it, going through the motions and looking like a Christian. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online and, and you have not received Christ as your God and Savior, I urge you do it this morning. All you have to do is admit to him what he already knows, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that you believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh to die for you on the cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven, so that you might receive a new heart and new life. And Jesus tells us as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. If you're not sure you belong to the Lord, make sure 
Don't leave this place without being sure. Come up here, talk with me, talk with one of the elders, talk with somebody, but, but settle this issue in your heart. Know Jesus, know that you belong to him. Don't mistake him for someone that he's not. You can't have a relationship with him if you don't recognize him for who he truly is. Jesus is the eternal word made flesh for us. He is the creator, the sustainer of all that is. He is the son of God, the second person in the Trinity, and he is our God and savior. One final thought. I've been mulling over this over the last couple of weeks, and I I don't have... um, too many conclusions. I just know that this is something I think God has impressed on my heart and maybe he'll impress it on yours. But when I received Jesus, I got more than a get out of jail card or a get out of hell card, if you prefer. I got more than just forgiveness of sins. I received a new heart, a new life, a new family. I have a new purpose for my life. And when I consider that, and I consider that this eternal word, this Jesus of whom I've been speaking for the last 45, 50 minutes or however long, that he lives in me. And if you are a child of God, he lives in you. Do you understand the implications of that truth for your life? Do you realize what kind of difference that ought to make in the way that we live? How we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we do, what we say. I love what the Apostle Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Spend time this week wrestling with what that means for you. And I guarantee you, 2022 is going to look a lot different than 2021. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Oh, what awesome truth. What unbelievable truths that we this morning have had the privilege to look at, to glean from. And now, Lord, we need to seriously consider how to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that can hear my voice this morning that has not yet surrendered their life to you, that this morning they would no longer reject you, but they would receive you as Lord and King, as God and Savior. And Father, that you would ruin them for anything less than your glory. Lord, I pray for those of us that have a saving relationship with you. I pray that you would cause us to know even more fully what it means to have Christ living in us and the implications for our lives. Lord, use us for the furtherance of your kingdom, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.